God. It's a um, message that inspires Paul in, as we, we read that passage that uh, was just read for us and uh, what, we, what we think about, you know, like that he's going through. If we'd read the first part of the chapter, and uh, I hope many of you were able to do that during the week, Paul is warned time and time again that he's going to encounter opposition in Jerusalem. He's going to be in danger. And he, he has said uh, back in chapter, in chapter 20, he says, I'm compelled by the Spirit of God to go to Jerusalem. And uh, he does. And just as the Spirit of God also said that he would find opposition, he does. Uh, but he's convinced that salvation belongs to our God. I want to begin this morning by reading from Romans. Romans chapter 12. I'm actually going to read a, a few passages today. And I'm going to begin in Romans 12 and verse 9. Many of us know 1 Corinthians 13, which is the passage about love that is uh, so often read at weddings, sometimes at funerals, and uh, applied to, to marriages in many instances, although it, it is written to a church. This also is written to a church. And so as it describes love, it's primarily talking about love first and foremost within the church, and then with those outside the church. So in, in chapter 12 of Romans, starting in verse 9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what isn't right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How's that sound for a church, right? Sound like a good place to be? Um, and, and I think it should. I, th I think Paul is here painting a picture of saying, this is what your community, your faith community, your spiritual family can, should, and can be like. He sets a standard, sets an expectation for them to strive for. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor 
one another. Um, keep your spiritual fervor. Be joyful, patient, faithful. Share with each other who are in need. Show hospitality. That's a, that's a good place to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 also gives us just another little glimpse of, of how church can and should be. First uh, Corinthians 3 and verse 16. Here Paul sort of paints a picture for us. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Now if we were to keep reading, we would find places where uh, the temple, our physical bodies, individual bodies are referred to as the temple of God. Uh, here he is talking about the church, the congregation, the collection of God's people is the temple. And what he means by temple, it's a picture for us, but what he means by temple is the place where God dwells. Okay? The place where God is present. And so he says, the place where God is present is among us. And I think he's particularly saying when you gather. Okay? If it was just when you're scattered, then he would be more likely to talk about it as individuals. Okay? Certainly we continue the the mission of the collective when we're scattered. He says, when you're working together, when you're together testifying to God, together serving God, together loving one another, he says, when you're doing that together, you are being the temple of God, the place where God's Spirit dwells. It's a good picture of the church, isn't it? Isn't that a place that you would want to be? Wouldn't you want to be at the place where God is present? Where God dwells? I'm going to come over to one more. In the book of Colossians, chapter 2, and the first five verses. I want you to know, says Paul, how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom they are hidden, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one will deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. I think this is an interesting little description here. Paul is writing to churches that he's never visited, to people that he's never met. Um, he says right there in verse 1, he says, uh, I'm contending for you, for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personal. And so he's writing this letter. He's concerned about them, cares about them. And then he comes down at the end in verse 5. He says, Though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. 
I, I just think that's really interesting, particularly for us, as we think about church at this point in time. For us, we have many members, right, that are part of our online uh, family. And they participate online. And, and we have this same sort of attitude. We, we care about them. He says, I'm contending on behalf of you that some of them never met. He says, I, I long to be together in person, but I continue to be with you in spirit. And he may or may not have ever met these people or visited those places. You see, distance isn't a barrier to being a church. Okay? It's, a, it's, a, it, it's something to work around. It's something different. But, but Paul is quite willing to say, look, I haven't met you, but I love you and I care about you and I care about your faith and your soul. I can't be with you. But I'm going to send you a letter. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to you know, exhort you. And I'm with you in spirit because you're important to God and you're important to me. And, and I think that, that's a challenge for us, right? What do we, it's easy when people are in front of us right now to at least care about them for five minutes, you know, while we talk to them afterwards. But what about the people that we don't see in front of us? That's more of a challenge, isn't it? But it was a challenge for Paul. Imagine you had to write a book, write a letter to a church the way that he did, handwriting, yeah, on a parchment, with ink and whatever whatever it was that their writing instruments were. No ballpoint pens. No computers to type. No just, you know, speech typing. But he made that effort because he cared so much about people he hadn't met and was unlikely to ever see. And so sometimes our understanding of church um, is stretched. But it's still a good thing. How do you think they felt when they received this letter? That they were included, that they were remembered, that they were thought about, that they were cared about. And so Paul is trying to do the things that he talks about in that passage in 1 Corinthians of loving one another through this letter, through this media, as he reaches out to these people that he hasn't met. So I want to paint, in looking at these three passages, this picture of a kind of an idealistic church that the church is the temple of God, the dwelling place of God himself, that the church is a place of love that is lived out through these actions as we encourage and incorporate one, one another and uh, build connections with one another, and, and that it can include those that aren't among us and, and that we still care and attend for them and their needs and pray for them and uh, are concerned for them. And so it's this idealistic, image of church. I think it's an attractive one, a good one. Paul uh, is presumed to have written each of these letters uh, between Acts chapter 20 and Acts chapter 21. Or maybe Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 21. And so he comes to Jerusalem knowing that he's going to encounter opposition, but having just written these books, he's very got this Encouraging churches, telling them how good things can be to be the people of God, to be the family of God. To... But church can be difficult. Church can be hard. 
I think sometimes we under, underestimate the grandeur of this adventure that we're on called church. Sometimes it can become mundane. Sometimes rolling out of bed on a Monday on a Sunday morning, Monday morning's hard. On a Sunday morning's hard. Sometimes we're not particularly motivated to come along. Sometimes yeah, we we do our time and we check our box. And we lose sight of that big picture. We lose sight of what it is that we're investing in. But it can be hard not just for our own motivation, but it can be difficult because we all come from different places. We all bring with us different experiences, different perspectives, and different values. And so as we read through Acts chapter 21, and we're going to spend most of our time back there if you have your Bibles. As we read through Acts 21, I think we encounter some of this reality of the challenges and the difficulty that is church. That Paul, who could write all these motivational, inspirational images and descriptions and and encouragements about what church is and could and should be, also experiences the realities that perhaps many of us have also experienced. So here's where we're at. When Paul arrives in Jerusalem in verse 17, it says they receive him warmly, which is good. Good start. Um, And the next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and the elders. So we're not told where all the apostles are. I think they've scattered. I think it's been hard for them. All that's left is James, the brother of Jesus, and the elders in, in Jerusalem. And it says that Paul greeted them, reported in detail everything that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. This was so exciting for Paul. This is a thrill that he is seeing God expanding beyond Israel. That these Gentiles, these pagans, are being welcomed into the kingdom of God. That people who were so far removed from God are now able to have relationship with God. And and Paul's character and personality is one of an explorer, one of who wants to go out to those outer reaches of the world. He he wants to tell everyone. He wants to see the kingdom grow. And and so this energizes him as he sees the kingdom of God spreading. And the people are excited. The church, as I said, they praised God because who can... Who can withstand the work of the Holy Spirit? Right? Because it's not Paul, it's God's Spirit working through him. It's God who is expanding his kingdom. And so they're Christians, of course, they praise God for what he's doing out there. But notice the very next thing they say in verse 20. This is the yes but. <laughs> this is the yes but. We're excited for you, but... They say, hey, Paul, have you noticed how many thousands of Jews have believed? That's good. Notice what else they say. And 
All of them are zealous for the law. That's a backhanded compliment. <clears throat> All right. That's a backhand. You see, because they said, hey, we're in Jerusalem. This is God's, the center of, of God's kingdom. You know, and we are Jews. And we are faithful to God's law. We are Christians and faithful to God's law. And, and that's a good thing. Okay? That they were supposed to be. As Jews, they were supposed to be faithful to God's law. But the, the way that they say it, the time that they say it, it creates classes. It creates the Gentiles out there who these same people have said, yes, Paul, go and don't bind the law on them. They're Gentiles. They can become Christians without the law. We understand that, absolutely. And they say, but we're Christians and we keep the law. Right? You've got to have a self-righteous tone as you read that. Okay? We're Christians and we keep the law. And there's thousands of us. We don't just keep it, we're zealous for it. You see, you can do both, Paul. Yeah. And so then they have to come up with a plan. Because they say, well, Paul, but these people, these Christians, these Jewish Christians who are zealous about the law, they've heard things about you. Here's what we've heard. Not only do you go and preach to the Gentiles and tell them that they don't need to, um, be, to keep the law. When you go to these communities and you go to the Jews first, we've heard that you tell the Jews that they don't need to keep the law. And so we've, we've got a test for you, if you will, and you can demonstrate your commitment to God, to the law, to your nation, to the temple. You can demonstrate your loyalty. Here's what you do. You, you go with these other guys that are about to purify themselves, make a vow, you know, keep the vow for however long, and then offer a sacrifice, seven days, and then offer the sacrifice. Just go and join with them. You will show your commitment to the law, you'll show your commitment to the temple, and therefore, you will show your commitment to the nation, to the people of God. Uh, sorry, to the Jewish nation. And so Paul's like, okay, well, we'll do this. Because he was not anti-law. He was not anti-Jew. Um, and so he's willing to do this. But it doesn't work. You see, I think it's difficult for us to grasp what is going on here. Jerusalem in the mid-50s, this event took place in around Pentecost, so what are we talking, somewhere around May of the year 57. We can be pretty accurate about that based on the governors and people who will mention. So in May of 57, well, remember Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in 70. So we're 13 years out from the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, that, that event in 70 is preceded by rebellion. That's why the Romans come and destroy it. So that moves it up. So we're getting closer to, we're about 10 years away from Jerusalem rebelling against the Romans and then a few years later the Romans coming to destroy it. There are, I mean, it, it is a, a boiling pot of Jewish nationalism. They are done with the Romans. We can look back and we can see who have been the Roman governors. Pilate came and went. I mean, that, that was years ago. And, um, and there have been a succession of Jewish governors, of Roman governors. They don't all very last very long. 
In fact, uh, one of the ones that we'll meet later, um, he, he, in fact, in verse 38, it says, Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Well, that was, a, that was just one event. There'd been other Jewish rebellions along the way. When that happened, the governors tended to be pretty brutal about how they squashed the rebellion. And, uh, and so they killed hundreds of Jews in Jerusalem. Whether they were part of the rebellion or not, they weren't really cared. It was just, we'll put the fear of Caesar into you. And, uh, and so you have this violence that is taking place. You have this um, oppression and cruelty. You also have anger and violence on the part of the, the Jews, many of the Jews. And the, the city is becoming more zealous, more, more nationalistic. And they're expecting, thinking maybe this is the time. This is the, the point, where the tipping point, where God is going to come and establish his kingdom. Yeah, I mean, they thought that a lot, right? But, I mean, we kind of do the same a lot of the times. And so, Jewish nationalism, as it increases... You know what that means? If you're for your people, who are you against? Everyone else. <laughs> right? You can't be for the Corinthians while you're for yourself. You can't be for the Ephesians when you're for yourself. Those Gentiles have become suspicious. Let's say they're not necessarily enemies, but they're at least suspicious. There are at least threats to... And, and so Paul comes to Jerusalem. He has been taking up a collection as he traveled around. We haven't really made, mentioned it much in this series, but uh, he mentions it in the Corinthian letters. He's been taking up a collection of money from these Gentile churches to bring to Jerusalem because he's recognized a need there. Along with the money, those churches sent representatives with him. Uh, if you go back to the end of chapter 19, um, I think it's end of chapter 19. Uh, oh no, start of chapter 20. It has a list there of people that are traveling with him, both for his protection and to be accountable for the money that these churches sent. Many of them, most of them, are Gentile Christians. So when Paul marches into Jerusalem to meet with James and the elders, he brings money from Gentile churches. And he brings a, a crew with him of Gentiles, Gentile Christians. Okay. To the Feast of Pentecost, a major Jewish festival, uh, at a time when there's a lot of suspicion of Gentiles. And, and I think we see this playing out in what happens. It's interesting that nobody in this passage mentions the money. Wouldn't you think for all that Paul has written about it and you know, the people that are coming with him to protect, like the money seems to be a really significant gift. And it's not even mentioned in this encounter. And, and, and some people wonder if it wasn't well received. If it was perhaps regarded as a, a payoff or a, a, a way of saying, we have more, we're better than you, we have more money than you, or, or some, you know, you know how things can get turned on their head, right? Good intentions and all of that. And so that's not mentioned. And, and then it's this, one of these Gentiles that is coming with him that in fact causes the riot. Now, it was people from Ephesus. Remember what happened in Ephesus? There was a riot. 
And, and there's people from Ephesus that have traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And uh, they're Jews. And, and they see Paul and they're not happy with Paul. They don't like Paul anyway. And then they recognize one of his traveling companions is also from Ephesus. And they know that he's a Gentile. Now, if you put one and one together, you're going to get three pretty quickly. Okay? Paul comes to Jerusalem to go to the temple. Paul welcomes Gentiles into the church, into the people of God. Paul has a Gentile with him. The Gentile must have gone to the temple with Paul as Paul is breaking down barriers, welcoming them in. Paul is defiling the temple. And we don't like him anyway. What more excuse do we need? Let's have a riot. In fact, let's kill him. Right next to the temple is a Roman garrison. and the Roman soldiers come out uh, pretty quickly. And they rescue him. But how do you think Paul looked as they rescued him? This was chaos. Paul was beaten. It says that the crowd was pressing so much that in... Um, where was it in verse 35, that when Paul reached the steps to go up into the garrison, uh, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. There was nothing orderly about this. And the crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. So here's, here's kind of how I want to say the church is hard, right? You see, church, Paul has come to the church in Jerusalem. He's, he's so excited about what God is doing amongst the Gentiles and the Christians and the way the gospel spreads. And they say, yeah, but what about us? Right? Like, that's good, but here's our values. We're focused because we're a Jewish community. We're focused on the Jews. We're focused on the issues of, of how can we be, be Christians and Jewish? How, does the, how do we keep the law and follow Jesus? That's our focus. And, and we're glad you're doing what you're doing out there, but when you come here, we've got these two different priorities, okay? two different cultures, two different sets of uh, teaching emphasis. And they don't mesh real well. Right? And, and so it's not that either is necessarily wrong. They're both seeking to follow God. They're, they're trusting God for their salvation through Jesus. They're being moved by the Spirit, but they're just in different places. And, and so they, they kind of butt heads a little bit there, I think. And, and then, let's say, if that thing about the money is true, there's like some sort of misunderstanding about something that Paul's trying to do that's good. But it doesn't come across as good. There's a communication breakdown about why you would do this. A suspicion. And, and then the presence of the Gentiles in a way that perhaps Paul did not, could not anticipate. The presence of these Gentile Christians actually was problematic because the church there was influenced by the cultural, political situation of the, of the time. And so when these Gentiles show up, rather than being a celebration of God's work in the world, of the Great Commission being, being fulfilled, uh, instead it's like, Paul, this is a, we're at a boiling pot here in Jerusalem. Gentiles are persona non grata. Uh, and you're 
marched in here and, and it hasn't made things better. Now, should the church have been able to differentiate between the cultural, political, social unrest outside the church from what was God was doing inside the church? We'd like to think so, wouldn't we? Um, but that wasn't the case. And so Paul's reception, even in this sort of mother church, the church of Jerusalem, is hard. This person that had written 1 Corinthians and or written Romans talked about the church as the temple of God. Instead, comes to the temple of God and gets ends up being attacked for desecrating the physical temple of God just out the window. And, and the church doesn't seem to be supporting him either at this point. He goes through the Romans and through the bureaucracy, appeals to his Roman citizenship. We'll see more about that next week. And so here's what I want to what I want to see is the church can be difficult. What we do here at Lawson Road, what Paul, what James and the elders were doing in Jerusalem, what millions of congregations over the years between then and now have done, is not something easy. It's difficult to be a church. It's difficult to live up to those expectations. Because we have the same things, right? We come with, from different places and we think, you know, the church should be standing up for this. And someone else says, no, the church should be standing up for this. And they're both good things. How is the church going to resolve it? What if there, you go, well, if there's two, we just do two. But what if there's six or ten or fifteen different things? that we want the church to be focused on and emphasizing and talking about. Sometimes we get communication problems, don't we? Sometimes we misinterpret people's intentions, that they do something that was trying to be good and, and we're suspicious of them. We don't trust them because it's difficult to trust people who are different than ourselves. We don't always understand why they do what they do. Sometimes... We listen to those rumors, right? Remember, that's why Paul had to go and have this purification thing because the people here have heard this about you, Paul. Doesn't that happen in churches? You ever heard something about someone in the church? Yeah. And we can see here, in Paul's case, it causes problems. Their solution wasn't a good one. And so church can be hard. And, and I think it's really interesting how... It's the clash of cultures that really causes the problems here. It's people that live in Jerusalem that maybe have never traveled outside Jerusalem. And Paul, who has been traveling the world multiple times, visiting all these Roman centers, you know, whether Corinth, Ephesian, Ephesus, uh, Athens, uh, these places that he's been significant Roman cities, speaking to, to prominent people. And he comes back, and I wonder if he felt he was coming back to something provincial. And was there a who's better, us or you kind of thing going on? Who has the most influence, the most spiritual authority? And so all these things still happen. Because they were people and we are people. 
But that cultural thing is hard. And, and so for us as a church, we have to be committed. I think this is it. Once we accept the church is hard, once we recognize the church can be difficult, then the next thing is, what are we going to do about it? You see, if we think church is easy, we roll out of bed, we roll in here, and we go home again. Because church is easy. But if church is hard, then how are we going to engage that? How are we going to connect with people? How are we going to show the people in this room that they're loved? As you look around the room, can can you think, does that person, how would that person know that they're loved by this church? How would that person know that they're loved by this church? It's really hard at the moment. You know, it's... in, back there in Romans, it sort of ended one of those sections with be hospitable. But who do we eat with? Who do we spend time with from the church outside of Sunday morning? Because if all we do is sit in seats together, we're going to struggle when it becomes hard. You see, the Jerusalem church doesn't seem motivated to come and rescue Paul. I don't think they knew him real well. He was this traveling speaker out there in Asia and out there in Greece and Antioch was his home church and he popped in every so often and every time he came he seemed to cause trouble. And if that's all we know about people, then when it's hard, we'll say, well, church is supposed to be easy. must be something wrong with them. If we're committed to it, if we recognize the difficulty, and we're committed to getting through this, to making it work, to going on this grand adventure that is the church of incorporating the world, of embracing cultures, and the challenges that come with that, then I think we're going to be motivated to be active and involved in each other's lives. And so even though we all share the same Spirit of God, even though we all share the same beliefs, church doesn't just something we work at. And so I want to just ask you this. I think in those first three passages we read, we see there some of Paul's, what I'm going to call, motivating vision. He has this picture in his head of what church can and should be like. And and it motivates him. It motivates him to write to people he hasn't met. And say that I'm with you in spirit, though I'm not with you in person. Because he he just has this longing and this picture of the goodness of church, of life following Jesus. And I wonder what is your motivating vision of church? What is your motivating vision of church? Because if your motivating vision of church is that we have the best worship leader, and that it's dynamic, and we're stomping feet and clapping hands, and the roof is bouncing every Sunday, then you're going to be disappointed. If, if your motivating vision is that you, know, you rank the preachers, and you, is that you have like a score sheet in the back of your Bible of ranking preachers, right? You go to the places that have the best, highest-ranked preachers. Because that's what motivates church for you. Then you're going to be disappointed. Don't nod too much there. 
And, and, and so what is your motivating vision? Sometimes I think our motivating vision is our experience. You know, I, I think back of, of Christians that have just poured themselves into my life, into my family's life, both when I was growing up and while I've been in ministry. And, and so that experience of people investing in me, of caring for me, of loving on me, of when I experience Romans chapter 12, like that's motivating, that I want more people to experience this goodness. But let me just share with you one that I think is relevant uh, to us and particularly uh, to sort of Paul and his situation. And, and we've discussed it before, and I, I think it's one to be reminded of. It's Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7, we have this vision of, of the church, the church in, in eternity before the throne of God. And, and John, as he writes this, he says, After this I looked, and there before me, this is in the, the throne room of God, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Notice it doesn't say whether they were zealous for the law or not. Okay? They just celebrate the presence of these people in the, in the throne, of God, throne room of God. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They cried with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. How's that for a motivating vision of what church can be like? I encourage you this week to just take a moment to sit down and say, what's my motivating vision of what church can and should be like? How does that motivate me to make it a reality?